So by now, I think it should be pretty obvious that we're going to be speaking about, or I will be speaking about marriage from Hebrews 13, verse 4. And I think it would be helpful to just set the record straight. Although I've been married for over 10 years now, I am by no means claiming to be a marriage expert. If you want marriage experts, go see Sam and Erica and Paul and Sybil. That was why we did the panel discussion downstairs during our breakfast hour. So if you missed out on that, I'm sorry, but those would be the people to talk to about years and years of expertise and advice and counsel and tips on marriage. I think what I have to offer us this morning isn't my great intellect, and isn't it great that every week when we gather together, we're not limited necessarily by a pastor or any one individual man, but we can dive deeply into God's Word and hear from God Himself. And that is the aim for this morning, and I just would like to remind ourselves of that, that the reason why we go through books of the Bible and the reason why we're slowly working through Hebrews 13 is because we want to dive deeply into God's Word on a weekly basis, and we gather together to hear from God and not from men. And the churches that are gathered around personalities or preachers are doing themselves a great disservice. And so we hope that this morning and in the coming following weeks, anytime you're here, you'd hear from God. So let's do that. Our passage this morning is from Hebrews 13, verse 4. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. If you're not familiar with using a Bible, Hebrews is a New Testament book. It can be found on page 1009 in these black Bibles that are in front of you. The red Bibles are the ones that the other church that uses this building is the one they use. So I'll be reading from the black one. That's why we keep referring to the black Bibles in front of you, if you're wondering. So Hebrews chapter 13 That's the big number, and then the little numbers, verses 1 through 4, are what I will read. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. We're going to take verse 4 into two weeks. So you could, in a sense, call this week part one of verse 4, and we will build off of this week into next week as we consider the gospel and our sexuality. So this week is the gospel and marriage, next week is the gospel and sexuality, and we'll deal with the second half of these words. You can kind of see it in verse 4 there, can you? Let marriage be held in honor among all, that's the first thing he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, that's the second thing he says. So this morning we're going to primarily deal with that first phrase, let marriage be held in honor among all. If you want an outline, if you want to figure out what the, the length or sense of how far this sermon is going to go, or etc., here's, here's the outline. There's going to be two sections. We're going to first look at marriage, and then we're going to look at marriage honored by all. So, pretty straightforward. We're going to first talk about what is marriage, and it's, I think, important in our day and our time that we think much about what marriage is, because there's a lot of different ideas. So that will be the bulk of our time, is to look at what is marriage, and then I'm going to give you five ways in our second 
part, the concluding section of how we can honor marriage. Five ways to honor marriage since we're encouraged and exhorted here to honor it. But first, what is it? What are we talking about? If I had to guess, based on who's in the room or who's in the area of the Chicagoland area, there's probably three prevailing views, not just here, but maybe everywhere about marriage. The first view would be that marriage is a sacrament. This would come from Catholic Church. The basis of this view comes from the laws that are given by the Catholic Church. And the reason why they have called their view sacramental is when you go back in church history, there was a man named Jerome. And Jerome looked at Ephesians 5, the passage that Katie just read for us. And in Latin, the word mystery has the same root for sacrament. And so we started using the language early on in the very early days of the church of sacramental mystery of marriage. Later, a very prominent teacher named Augustine used a similar word in Latin to talk about the sacred bond of marriage, but doesn't mean when he taught it the same thing that Catholics mean today, when they think marriage dispenses grace, that there's this special, mysterious thing happening when people get married, similar to the way they view the Lord's Supper and the presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. They view marriage as uniting these two people, and that his special grace is coming during the marriage union, and only when the church is performing the marriage, the Catholic church that is, can this grace be dispensed in the proper form and manner. This is not the view of Embassy Church. We're not a Catholic church, and we think there's many different problems with this view. Number one, that it's based more on church tradition and law and not the Word of God. And also when you see through history that this misunderstanding of a Latin word sacrament then got confused and then used into their other teachings about sacraments. So marriage is not sacramental. That would be the first thing to say we would reject that view as a church. The next most common view, and this would be I think the view not just of Catholics but really of basically everybody that's not a Christian and doesn't care about the Bible. This would be the contract view. So if the view of sacraments is based on church law, this view is based on civil law. The view of everyday ordinary people is that marriage is kind of defined by the state and the civil authorities that are above us. The Supreme Court, for example, can decide who gets married and who doesn't. The local judges and authorities, because marriage is just a civil law, we then have the authority to determine who is married and who's not. Because it's just merely a piece of paper or a contract in the eyes of so many in the world, it is temporary, it is conditional, and it is on the basis of performance and that you can end your marriage for no real good reason at all or whatever you find to be a good reason. And you can enter into it mostly because of the benefits you want to get out of it and primarily, you continue to hold on to your rights, your autonomy, and your individualism in this sort of contract view of marriage. Friends, this is the prevailing view of the world around us in terms of what marriage is. The third view is based on God's divine law, not church law, nor civil law, but the Word of God. And it's that it is a covenant. So three views. There is sacramental, there is contractual, and there is covenantal. The covenantal view is 
coming from the teaching of Scripture as best as we can tell and has been passed down for thousands of years, with the slight exception of the Catholic Church. We believe that marriage then, because it's a covenant, is permanent, that it is not on the basis of our performance, but rather on the basis of our commitment to God and the authority that He has said, this marriage shall be joined together and let no man separate this marriage. People who have a covenantal marriage view realize that we enter into marriage not on the basis not only of our performance, but because of the other person and the new relationship that's being created as we join together, not because of what I can get out of the marriage. Whereas we contrast that with the contractual view. We enter the marriage because of some benefit I can get, and when I don't get that benefit anymore, I'm out. See ya. And civil authorities have no problem with this in the civil law. Divine law has a big problem with this. This is exposing the inward bent you have towards your selfishness and your sin, and that's being exposed every time people get married when they want to leave and bounce and not stay in the marriage. So where do we get this idea that marriage is a covenant? Does it ever say that anywhere in the Bible? Well, in fact, it does. The end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. You don't necessarily need to turn there. These are very short references of Scripture, but I'll read them. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by a covenant. So here's quite explicit explanation of conversation between Malachi the prophet and Israel in the Old Testament is explaining that you have a wife and she is the wife by covenant. Similarly, in Proverbs chapter 2 verse 17, you see another example of the scriptures making this covenantal view quite explicit. Verse 16 says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For she has forsaken the companion of her youth and has forgotten the covenant of her God. So the adulterous woman is called in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, a woman who has left her covenant in marriage. In addition to that, the passage that was read earlier in Genesis chapter 2 have been argued by many pastors and theologians as having all kinds of covenantal language when you understand what the complexities of a covenant are, which brings us to our most natural next question. What then is a covenant? If we have a covenantal view of marriage, what's a covenant? My guess is you and I were interacting with people this week and used covenant language all the time, right? No, we don't talk like this. We don't say, hey, I'm going to make a covenant. You know, it's, it's just strange, it's foreign, it's old, ancient, but it's really the best word and we should preserve it. Because contract isn't good enough and all the other views that we've talked about are not adequate to Scripture. So let's just think through what a covenant is. And in fact, this will help us. And what we've been doing in this series all along is I've been trying to point out that chapter 13 builds off of the theology of chapters 1 through 12. And this is kind of true really in every book in the New Testament just about, where doctrine of God, Jesus Christ, the gospel, and who God is, is the foundation for any exhortations for how we live as Christians. And in the same way, Hebrews is structured quite that way. 
Chapters 1 through 12, the majority of it is teaching about Jesus and doctrine and all kinds of priesthood and temples and sacrifices and the wonderful things that God has done for us in Jesus. And we've been going through that for almost 30 weeks, I think it is now, what? Now we get to chapter 13, and it's a lot of commands and exhortations for how you should live. So when we get to chapter 13, we can't just go there and forget all of chapters 1 through 12. That would do the writer a disservice, and that would do you a disservice. You need to remind yourself of the gospel before you dive into the imperative of honoring marriage, for example. So, this is Refresher. Earlier in this sermon series, we talked about covenants, because in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about the covenant that God makes through Jesus Christ. And in fact, I said a covenant is a loving relationship with legal regulations. So those of you who were there when we were going through Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that should be a reminder. That's the simplest way I can define covenant. It is a loving relationship. Covenants always involve relationships with either one you know, one party and another party it could be groups of people, it could be individuals. The marriage covenant is obviously not a groups of people. We don't believe in polygamy. Polygamy is always seen as negative, even though it's in the Old Testament. That's not like positively endorsing polygamy. Those families turned out very negatively. You know, the consequences of polygamy are never seen as the, hey, do polygamy. Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's endorsing it, friends. So the marriage covenant is two individual people becoming one. And that new relationship is defined by the covenant. But there's legal regulations when these two people come together. And this is why in weddings you see vows being taken. That was why earlier this morning I was asking Sam and Erica and Paul and Sybil about their vows. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That moment in the ceremony, if you've never kind of stepped back and just asked yourself, what is going on here in this wedding? Well, two googly-eyed people love each other so much. No, no, there's something more than that. Something more than the present love of those two people. In the marriage vows, these two people are not just professing their love for each other, but their commitment to stay together forever, permanently, till they die. That's what those words mean. So if you write your own marriage vows, by the way, and not that that would be awful or terrible or anything, but make sure that you're just not merely expressing your current present love but you're vowing before God and everybody else publicly that you will stay committed to this marriage for better, for worse, sickness, health, richer, poorer, till we die. See, weddings are fun and exciting, and we like them, and we get excited about them, but there's some serious weighty things going on when we say those marriage vows before God and before all of these witnesses. I kind of think it's a shame that we take it out in a lot of weddings these days. I ask a lot of couples, hey, you want to do that old school thing? Where we say, does anyone object to the wedding or these people? And there's kind of like this sobering reminder of like, or forever hold your peace, you know, so help you God. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those little moments in old school traditional weddings? I think that there's something to the like weight and seriousness of what's about to happen when you remind everybody. Now, before we go on and say these vows, these are serious vows, does anyone have any objections or forever hold your peace? See what I'm saying? We need a little bit of that when we think about the marriage happening on the wedding day. Loving relationship with legal regulations. The strange thing is we live in a modern world in a day when people think these things don't go together. 
Love and law, those are the opposite. They just clash all the time. Love is the opposite of law. Strange paradox about any relationship in the world is that relationships, the more committed and the more legal they are, the more intimate and loving they can be. Let me say that again. The strange paradox of really every relationship, whether it's a friendship, a family relationship, or a marriage, or in particular a marriage, the strange paradox of relationships are that the more committed and the more legal and binding the relationship is, the safer and the more intimate and the more close that they can be because there is this covenant that's protecting it. If there isn't a commitment to it, then anything you do or say or truly be yourself and expose yourself might mean the other person would leave. That's not a safe place to be at all. Who wants to open themselves up and out and be who they really are if they know that that person might get rejected? But if there's a covenant that's protecting and guarding and having boundaries for this marriage relationship or friendship or whatever, then they can be themselves truly and fully. These things, in fact, do go together. And the covenant is actually the best way to describe the most meaningful and intimate relationships in the world, especially our relationship with God. I want you to think about it like this. Imagine two people come together for a friendship or marriage. When they come together, one of them is saying, I will be kind and loving and generous and wholehearted to you just as long as you are kind and loving and wholehearted to me. How do you think that's going to work? How cold will that marriage or friendship or relationship be? And how long will it take to get really cold and icy? This is the reason why so many marriages fail, because that's the mindset we have when we have a contractual view. We go into the marriage saying, look, I will love you as so long as you love me back to the same degree you love me, I will love you, because that's only what's fair and right. Now picture a whole different setting. Imagine two people coming together and the person says, I will love you, I will be generous to you, I will be kind to you, even when you're not kind and generous and loving to me. Well, that's got a lot of hope for intimacy and love and endurance. That has the environment for actually the deepest intimacy possible. Law without love will kill every relationship. If I come up to my wife and I say, honey, I brought you this beautiful bouquet of flowers, and she asks, oh, honey, that's so sweet. Why'd you do that? It's not even my birthday. And I say, because I had to. We have a covenant together. You know, the law says I, I have to give you flowers every so often. In that moment, that whole day is just ruined and spoiled. Oh, So law without love, where I say instead of, well, because of the covenant, because I love you. I gave you flowers because I love you. It couldn't make me happier than to give you flowers. This is my greatest joy and delight is to serve and honor you. She feels cherished and loved, doesn't she? But on the other hand, if we have love without law, then what will happen when things aren't feeling so chipper and happy? When you don't have 44 years of marital bliss like Paul and Sybil. What do you do in those days when things get hard and there is disagreement, sharp disagreements? Will just the love sustain and last? Well, in those moments, you're not feeling very loving. 
This is where law is so necessary. This is where the legal regulations are so important. It's what keeps you in the relationship. So see this balance here. Law without love will kill the relationship. But love without law will lose the relationship when times get tough. This is exactly what we've learned about in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. When we were going through this picture of the old and new covenant, and Jesus saying to us that there's a new covenant that I'm establishing with you. So turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 8 for one more refresher of this passage. Everything that I've just said about law and legal regulations are summarized in this beautiful passage that's quoted from the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7. For if that first covenant, speaking of the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then here's the quotation from the Old Testament, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay. We've already taught on this. We don't need to go into all the details. Let's make one simple observation. Notice the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant when he says that I will not establish one like the old one in verse 9 that I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt. For what happened? They did not continue in my covenant. And when that happened, see what God did. He had no regard for them, no concern for them. He, he turned his back on them. In the Old Covenant, God saw the sin of Israel and he turned his face away from Israel. In the New Covenant, he says that he is going to see his church, his bride, and instead of turning his face away from us, he will turn his face away from our sin. Notice, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't just turn his face away from our sins. He turns them away and never remembers them again. How could God do this? How could God turn his face away from our sins and remember them no more? Friends, this is the gospel. God has created a new covenant on the basis of Jesus Christ's death on a cross, resurrection from the dead, ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father, so that when God sees Jesus, he can turn his face away from our sin instead of turning his face away from us. You see this? You see this covenant-binding relationship that God is making? It is not like the old covenant. It is like the new covenant. It's not like the contract that says, hey, if you guys obey, well, then we will have this good agreement here. The new covenant says, even when you disobey, I will remember your sins no more. 
That's a covenant. A covenant that can last permanently. That's the relationship that Jesus has come to establish. This is the good news of the gospel that should be declared every week in this pulpit. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. That's what we said a few weeks back. He came to start a brand new relationship with his people. This relationship defined by his love and these regulations of his covenant. The more binding and committed someone is to a relationship, the more intimate and deep it can be. How deep and intimate can this relationship be if Jesus has committed himself this way? Think about that for a second. If the more committed and the more covenantal the relationship is, the more intimate the environment can be because of the safety of the covenant, how secure and how deep and how intimate can your relationship with the Lord be? This is exactly why it says, for they will not have their neighbors teaching one another, know the Lord, because they will all know the Lord intimately, personally. This is why Christians talk quite often about Christianity is about a personal relationship with God. This is where that idea is coming from. You can know God personally, not abstractly or conceptually or intellectually, but know him like he's your brother, like he's your father, personally. Because Jesus has committed himself to this covenant in this way. It's kind of like the Ulysses Pact as an illustration. Do you guys know what the Ulysses Pact is? No? Yes? The Ulysses Pact is a freely made decision designed and intended to bind oneself to something in the future. Its name comes from Ulysses, which is the Greek name, or comes from the Greek name Odysseus. Now do you guys know who I'm talking about? Odysseus from Odyssey. Anybody have to read that stuff in school or whatever? Okay, so a few of you might now know what I'm talking about. So think back about the 10-year journey of Odysseus, the hero of the great grand story, Odyssey. And during that journey, all of these different trials and monsters and people that he'd have to get to to try and reclaim his throne, one of them was the sirens. Ulysses wanted to hear the sirens' song, although he knew that by listening to the beautiful, sweet voices of the sirens as they're on their boat voyaging through, that he would leave course and start heading toward the sirens and then fall into rocks and disaster and the whole thing would be ruined. So he wanted to hear the song, but he knew that by doing so, that would lead to his disaster and destruction. So what did he do? He told all of the sailors that they needed to put wax in their ears so that they couldn't hear the song. Then he asked them to tie him to a mast on the boat to make sure that he would not do anything crazy and try and steer the ship. And he said, I want you to draw your swords, and if I somehow get out, kill me before I do anything crazy. That's a commitment. That's intensity to say, look, I would like to have this in the future, but I need some sort of protection or guidance put around me. What a picture we should have in our heads when we think about this idea 
of the luring sirens and temptations that will come our way in our marriages or in our Christian life and know that there's something that would be stronger or more committed that holds. Because there's times when you're going to hear luring temptations like the sweet song of the sirens, and it's going to want to lead you off course in your life. How are you going to stay faithful? How did Jesus stay faithful? When the sirens were singing the loudest and when the temptation was the greatest, Jesus Christ, in the greatest act of commitment and covenantal love that has ever been displayed, Jesus Christ was tied, not just tied, but nailed to a wooden mast. See, that's commitment. Jesus Christ was not just surrounded by sailors with swords, but Roman soldiers with spears and was speared in the side. He was bound and even though I'm sure he did not enjoy the sacrifices that it cost, he stayed. He stayed for you, for me. To demonstrate the overwhelming deep commitment he has for his love, for his church and his bride, he stayed on that mast, on that cross, and he died. Is there any greater commitment that you could show than to give your life? So imagine it this way. Instead of saying on the wedding day, till death do us part, it's as if Jesus said, my death from the start. That's the marriage vow that Jesus made. I'm so committed to this, I'm giving my life, my death, to the start of this committed relationship. I'm all in, Jesus says. That's the greatest marriage vow that's ever been given. And he gives and offers that to you and to me today. Friends, are you not overwhelmed with joy and gladness or just the love that God has displayed for you in Christ? The commitment? And if that commitment is so deep and so great, then that means this love and this intimacy with God can be no greater than any other love in the world. For all marriages and all loves are pointing to this love in this way. The highest level of commitment possible. Can't get any more committed to giving your life and your death. So, we can now know the Lord. This is the gospel, and this ultimately is the picture marriage is painting. What is marriage? It's the covenantal committed love between a man and a woman for life. Simply put. Second point in our message. Marriage should be honored by all. That's from our passage in Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. The word honor here is the word that is translated elsewhere throughout the scriptures, precious. Maybe some of you are familiar with 1 Peter 1's language when it says that you have been ransomed and redeemed from the empty, futile way of your former life, and you have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Same word here in Hebrews 13.4. Or in other instances, this word precious is used to talk about the precious value of stones, rubies, jewels. Interesting, isn't it? I wonder how many of us have thought of marriage as that precious, valuable, honorable. We should honor marriage because it is in fact precious to God first and foremost. It is the display of the glory of God and the beautiful gospel that I was just able to preach to you. The wonderful news that Christ has committed himself to his bride. That's what marriage ultimately was made for. Do not be confused. 
Marriage is not an illustration that God saw throughout the corridors of time and said, hey, I need to figure out some way to communicate to God's people how much I love them. Mm-hmm. Oh, marriage. God, sovereign, outside of time, grand plan, universe, creator, knew from the beginning that he would put man and woman together in marriage so that then you and I would know, oh, this is heading somewhere. This is temporary. Earthly marriages are only going to last but like a vapor, like our lives. This is pointing to something greater, a greater love, a greater marriage. Marriage then on earth is not ultimate. It's about the character and holy love of God, the committed relationship displaying his beauty to us. It's reflecting to us the the beautiful love between the Trinity, two people becoming one. What better illustration then is there of God's character, his triune nature, that three persons can exist in one being? Marriage is pointing to that beautiful picture. So therefore, when we have polygamous relationships, when there's multiple partners and all these different things that are added in, or when you add other people from the outside, this then defiles the picture of marriage and does it dishonor. The reason why we care as a church about marriage is not because of some political debate that's going on in our world today. They have a whole different worldview about marriage. Why we should care about it in the church is because the church cares about God. Because we care about the gospel and we care about the glory of God made known among all the nations. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I'm not sure where I stand on the marriage debate that's going on. I think that there's a lot of complexity to that and we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. So, I'd encourage you to come back next week. That would be one thing to suggest. Another thing to suggest would be for all of us to have patience about what's the the ways that we interact with government and law and different things in the world today. They did not have the same government structures when the Bible was written that we do now. There's not just a simple, well, here's the deal. But, how can you be a Christian who loves God, loves his character, loves his gospel, and knows that this marriage that he has intended and designed is to display the beauty of God in his gospel and not want in any way, in some form or fashion, to preserve and honor that marriage picture. Because you see, our non-Christian friends, the world outside of us, they will not be able to understand the gospel as well if they don't have a good picture of marriage. They don't have a good definition of marriage. If they don't understand that marriage is ultimately a covenant, that marriage is permanent, that marriage is not contractual, but it is covenantal, And the more that they see committed, long-lasting marriages from Christians or even non-Christians in the world, the better they will finally understand the love of Jesus. And I hope all of us want people to know the love of Jesus. So that is why, as a church, regardless of political debates, I could care less whether you're more Democratic or more Republican. This church is not a church about political sides being taken. You could be a member of our church and have different political views on certain issues for sure. This church is a gathering of people who love Jesus. And if we love Jesus and we love his gospel, well, then there's a sense to which we need to care about this picture of marriage because marriage is pointing to Jesus and the gospel. So therefore, we should honor it for his glory and for our love for God. So five practical suggestions for honoring marriage to close this message. One, we would do honor, and and by the way, I want to just preface this. These are not like the exhausted lists. These are just five that were laid on my heart as pastoral encouragements to you all that I thought might be applicable. So we'll see where this goes. But this list could be 20 different things long. Maybe you don't like my list, but here's the list. 
Number one, we can honor marriage by not unnecessarily delaying marriage if we want to pursue marriage. So this particularly applies to maybe a lot of you Judson students or young people. We do not need to necessarily delay marriage because of your maturity. Where in the Bible would you find that people need to be to a certain maturity level before they get married? Or you don't need to delay your marriage because of a certain financial status. Well, I'll get married when I get enough money. Now, I think that there should be some common sense here about how much you can afford and care for things. And if you're still paying for, or you're not paying for anything and mom and dad are, you know, there's all those kind of things to think through practically, wisely. But a lot of times we're really putting off marriage a whole lot more than we've used to ever in the world. So just as a slight kind of anecdote here, yesterday I was at a college retreat with over 40-some college students, and I was speaking to them about the church, and then we got talking about marriage and different things. And I told them that I was 19 when I was married, and I just finished my sophomore year of college. And then there was this, (gasps) whoa, like gasp in the room, right? And then I suggested, hey, guys, if some of you are 19 or in your sophomore year, maybe you could get married in the next year. And there was like this, "Uh uh-uh, no way. I mean, this is what I'm saying. Young people today, it seems like they're afraid of marriage. And it's like, no, no, let's kind of take our time and, and delay marriage and kind of stay single and be fun or kind of just, you know, work things out with our careers or different things. Friends, I'm not telling you to get married at 19 necessarily. I'm just using that as an illustration that if we unnecessarily delay marriage, I think we're probably not honoring marriage like we should. If it is a good gift and you desire it, why wait until so-and-so? Each of you have different situations and circumstances, so hear this for what it's worth. Talk to a pastor, talk to me, get good discipling counsel. I'm sure it applies differently, but let's not unnecessarily delay marriage. I think that would dishonor marriage by prolonging singleness if we, in fact, desire marriage. Secondly, we honor marriage by fighting for our current marriages. I think one of the downfalls of the last few decades in the church is the way that we have responded towards same-sex marriage and getting all the attention in not only the media but in the churches, but that when no-fault divorce was passed, maybe I'm just not old enough, but it just doesn't seem like there was the same animosity against no-fault divorce when that was passed, nor do I see coalitions and groups of people saying, we need to end no-fault divorce. But in my conviction or observation although I don't think this is coming from God's Word, but just my observation and observations that I've read from others, is that the greatest damage to marriage and the greatest dishonor of marriage is divorce, not same-sex marriage. For I f- in fact, I think one of the reasons why our view of marriage is so loosey-goosey in the world today, why it's so flippant and not serious and real is because the generation of people, the quote-unquote millennials, the the college students today, the 20s and 30-somethings, why they don't think marriage is all that important, how we define it or what it is, is because they haven't seen people stay married because their parents have been divorcing like crazy ever since no-fault divorce. What first caught my eye onto this idea was when I was in my ethics class in seminary about four or five years ago. My ethics professor said that in his counsel of many different churches and people for the last 20-some, 30 years that he's been in ministry, he says, hands down, the greatest moral problem in the church today is not same-sex marriage. It is divorce and remarriage. Hands down. He deals with way more of those issues in the church and much of the same-sex marriage stuff, even though that is also an issue within the church, it is paling in comparison Just think about it this way. Can you count how many people you know 
that are affected negatively by divorce and remarriage in your life. Compare that then to the number of people you know that are struggling with same-sex marriage. My anecdotal evidence is that at one moment, just not too long ago, my wife was talking about a friend of ours, and the marriage was separated, and they have children, two different young children, and so my wife was obviously concerned. How are the children doing? And the children responded, oh, we're doing fine. All of our friends, their mom and dad are separated or divorced. Like, that's normal. And that was one of those moments where I was like, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Divorce and remarriage has been so prevalent and persistent both in and out of the church. I think one of the things we need to do is say, hey, why is same-sex marriage getting all the attention? Why is it for decades we've not been talking about necessarily this issue as much? Your elders have put together a statement on divorce as we've considered this issue and its severity and its importance. Divorce is messy, and I am certain that it will be the most difficult thing I will face as a pastor. Some of you have faced awful divorces. Some of you are hurting because of divorce, whether you're mom and dad or all these sensitive issues that are coming up. So I am not trying in any sense to try and belittle or hit you down or anything If that's you, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Jesus' blood forgives all sin, including divorce. But your elders, in the statement that we've put together on terms of where we're currently at in terms of divorce and remarriage, one of the things you need to know is that we are going to fight for your marriages even if you're not currently trying to. We are going to constantly push you toward reconciliation even if there's adultery. We will certainly not stand up for abuse that's physical or violent in any way. We will call the police because domestic violence is not even allowed outside of the church. The world looks at domestic violence and throws those people in jail. So we should too. So what do you do with domestic violence issues? Call your elders and you call the police. If you're getting hurt at home, I tell you ladies, I say this with all my heart, we want to be by your side and fight for your marriage and standing up for what's right. And what's right in this moment would be for your husband to go to jail. So separation would happen because your husband's in jail, but you're not pursuing divorce and trying to end the marriage. We will still fight for your marriage and hope that God's grace would somehow miraculously bring you back together, but we will protect your life. So just know that this is the heart of your elders at this church. We want to fight for your marriage, and we urge you to do that as well. This would honor marriage in the church and for the world to see it. Thirdly, we can honor marriage by the way we talk to our spouses. We should not call our wife the old ball and chain. We should not say, oh, there's the old bucket, whatever. I don't know what they say these days, you know? But I think Paul and Sybil served us really well when they said, when you're in disagreement, you should never, never curse at one another or attack each other, attack the issue of the disagreement. What wise words. This is why I'm not the expert, okay? So, honor marriage by the way you can talk to your spouse in the marriage. Number four, we can honor marriage when you who are in here that are single can help married couples and encourage and be pro-marriage even in your singleness. So, even if you feel called to singleness, even if that's just the current state that you're in, 
Regardless of where you're at, there is the beauty of you saying, even though my individual preferences may not be to be pro-gung-ho marriage, you know from God's word that this is beautiful, it's wonderful, and you ultimately, by the way, single people, you are married. You are married. How can you not love marriage? You are betrothed, legally bound to Jesus by your profession of faith. You are married. And one day this great banquet feast will be the consummation of your marriage with Jesus Christ. So be pro-marriage even in your singleness and help married couples in the church. Do marriage better. I don't mean that that's always, well, there's our babysitting for the church, single women and men. (laughs) Practically helpful. I'm not asking for any. Please don't feel any sort of obligation. But I think in all seriousness, single people should not see this as, well, that's the married people's issue. This is an issue about God and his church and the beauty of his glory. So I think it would be only fitting that if, fifthly, we looked at how we could honor marriage by the way married people then talk to singles. I think it would honor marriage that if married people knew that this earthly marriage was so temporary and not ultimate, and it's just simply a gift and a picture pointing us to an ultimate marriage, then don't talk to single people like something's wrong with them for being single. That hurts them. That's not loving or kind. Oh, what's wrong with you? Where's the ring, huh? Where's the boyfriend? I mean, constant belligerent questions like this are not loving and helpful. And I don't think that even honors marriage. Maybe from your mind, like, well, marriage is so important and so good. These people should get married. And so I'm honoring marriage by just getting all over these people about why they need to get married. I don't think that that serves our singles very well. So I'd encourage you married people to be sensitive to where God might have different people in their lives, to be respectful of those things, and realize that at the end of the day, marriage on the earth is not ultimate. Our marriage with Jesus is ultimate. See how the gospel kind of makes marriage make a whole lot more sense? So if we make sure we remember the covenant love of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 8, he will remember your sins no more. That's how committed he is to you in this marriage. It starts to make sense when you start from the gospel and then go to marriage. So friends, let's honor marriage together as a church. And next week, Lord willing, if we can gather back together, if it's not negative, whatever, and we can actually make it here, We're going to discuss together the second half of this verse. We're going to look at marriage and sexuality, and I'm going to try my best to serve you in some practical advice on how to think through same-sex marriage as well. So, viewers, discretion advised for anyone with little ears. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning. Thank you for the ultimate marriage that we get to celebrate right now as we take the bread and the cup. What a foretaste of what is about to come when you return and all earthly marriages disappear and we get to have our marriage feast and banquet with you forever. Jesus, we're so thankful. So thankful for this wonderful picture of the bread and the cup. We're so thankful for your commitment to us. There's no greater commitment, there's no greater depth of commitment that could be made, and therefore there's no greater security and safety. Thank you that all of us in this room can come to you with all of our deepest, darkest secrets and sins, 
we can feel naked and be unashamed, vulnerable, open, and safe, even with all our flaws and sins, because you have come, God, we praise you, God, we thank you that you have come in Christ to say, even if you sin against me, I will keep loving you, and I will remember your sins no more. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to remain seated as we take the bread and cup, as I referenced earlier. This meal is for those who would consider themselves